Episode 8 of Brad the Nomad. Thoughts on Dresden. This is Brad the Nomad, the podcast of an American's eclectic look at the history, culture, and wonders of Europe. And now, Brad the Nomad. Hello, and welcome to 2015, and welcome back to Brad the Nomad. In this episode, I'll be talking about my observations of the lovely city of Dresden. Dresden marks my first trip to Germany, the third country I've visited in Europe. To be honest, I wanted my first German city to be Berlin, and I'm still hoping to get over there. But during my two-week holiday furlough, I took a bus up for a quick day trip. I spent the day walking through the historic heart of this ancient city, sampling its food and admiring its architecture. What struck me most, however, is that this is a city still living in the shadow of its tragic past. So let's hop on the bus and take a brief look at what is known as the Florence of the Elba. Let's set the scene. Dresden is the 11th largest city in Germany and the capital of the state of Saxony, situated on the Elba River. It's only two hours from Prague by bus, making it an easy day trip destination. It is one of the cultural centers of Europe, boasting an impressive collection of museums and universities. It's also one of the most beautiful cities on the continent, with a distinct skyline still dominated by church domes and spires. Until that fateful February evening in 1945, Dresden was dubbed Europe's jewel box due to its Baroque and Rococo city center. Having walked through it, even as a resurrected city, I can see why artists have been so enchanted by this place and have been painting its silhouette for centuries. Dresden is a small city. Something I find very hard to get used to is the small walking distance size of European city centers. The vast majority of important buildings are all within walking distance of each other, either in the Altstadt, or Old Town, or the Neustadt, or New Town. There's no subway. The trans system is more than sufficient. Outside of the resurrected city center, the city quickly fades into urban sprawl no different than a typical European suburb with many modern buildings. This is why most tourists don't leave the center. I was no exception to this except for my trip to the German Military Museum. Modern Dresden is known for its Christmas fair, which takes place in the main square of the Altmarkt, or Old Market. Last year marked the 580th time the fair has been held, making it the oldest fair in Germany and one of the oldest in Europe. The fair was easily twice the size of Prague's Old Town Square Fair, but paradoxically, it attracted half the crowd. It's especially surprising when you consider this fair had a freaking Ferris wheel in the middle of it. As for the fair itself, it was very similar to the fairs I described in Prague on my last episode. I will say there seemed to be more variety in terms of food and shopping than in the mother of cities. I'll get to some of the treats in a minute. The crowds were the interesting aspect of the fairs. I've always liked to people watch in big cities. The Germans have that reputation of being cold, abrupt, and distant, and that's on a good stereotyping day. 
you wouldn't have thought it here. Everyone was in a good mood, happily drinking, eating, browsing, and chatting. I had no apprehension going up to someone who had something that looked tasty and asking, Voest, or where is, in some of what little is left of my college German classes. So, what did I try while I was in Dresden? At the Christmas fair, I tried a Frikadellian, or a pork burger. Basically, it's a giant burger about the size of your face that's made of shredded pork, smashed into a patty. It was as delicious as it was artery-clogging. I also enjoyed a banana-based treat, where the fruit is frozen, dunked in milk chocolate, and then drizzled with white chocolate. Unfortunately, I didn't catch the name, but it was very good. As for the beer, well, as I said earlier, I'm not much of a beer drinker, but I did try a little local brew. I have to say, I still prefer Pilsner if I have to drink. But it wouldn't have been a culinary trip to Germany if I didn't try some of the Wurst. You know, sausage. The variety of meat one can find in Germany makes the mind real. According to Neil McGregor's Germany, Memories of a Nation, there are 1,200 different sausages in Germany. I try one of the regional Saxony favorites, which is served like a hot dog. The catch is, the bun is only about a third of the length of the sausage, so unless you want greasy fingers, you have to eat the ends before you get to the middle. In my attempts to walk off all these extra calories, I spent most of my day strolling around Dresden city center. It still reflects its medieval roots, with its winding thin roads and life radiating out from the city center. It's a very low-rise city, having largely escaped the architectural ramifications of a Germany that is now the dominant economic power of the European Union. From many places in the center, you can see the imposing dome of the Frauenkirche, or the Church of Our Lady, looming in the distance. And overall, Dresden is a very quiet city, much more subdued than Prague or Vienna. It's almost as if the very buildings themselves have absorbed what is still in living memory. The architecture Dresden is best known for, Baroque and Rococo, is symbolized by the Frauenkirche, the Semperoper, or the Opera House, and the graceful Augustus Bridge spanning the Elba. It's important to remember how much of this architecture is not only post-war reconstruction, but in some cases post-war reconstruction that's barely 20 or 30 years old. Dresden's darkest time appears in the architecture in a less subtle way, namely from the people who originally rebuilt it. I remember approaching the German military museum and being startled to see a statue of soldiers proudly proclaiming memory of the year 1945. It was only when I got closer that I saw it was a monument for Soviet war dead, bursting with hard-jawed Soviet realism. Dresden, or more accurately what was left of it, was liberated by the Red Army in the waning months of the war. With the city center a bombed-out wasteland, much of it was rebuilt in socialist taste in the 1950s. The regime bulldozed what was left of some historic buildings and left other ruins as war memorials. Right across from the Altmacht is the Banal Cultural Palace, a holdover from Dresden's GDR days. Although communism is gone, stern workers and farmers still look down on yuletide revelers from a mural within the aluminum structure. Even today, Stalinist apartment blocks loom at the edges of the city, serving as a stark contrast to the gems still standing or brought back from destruction. I think it's time to get to the elephant in the room when it comes to Dresden and its history. I'll preface this by saying that what you're not about to hear is a condemnation or justification for what happened, 
I may yet dedicate an episode to the bombing of Dresden, but at this point I am far too ignorant on the topic to pontificate about the morality of this event. Instead, I just want to talk about my reflections on walking through the city, and still seeing the scars from that night, 70 years ago, very much in evidence. When it comes to me in history, a lot of my friends and family and co-workers will immediately get images of the Titanic or New York City. While it's true that those have become very indelible symbols for me, my passion for learning and sharing of the past came from my grandfather on my mother's side, Arthur Langley. I had several family members that served in World War II, all in Europe, ranging from a great-uncle storming Omaha Beach to my other grandfather serving as a plane chief for the 8th Air Force. But Arthur Langley, or Bramps as I called him because I couldn't pronounce Gramps, was the only one still alive by the time I had comprehension to ask someone about the war. And I was lucky. He was relatively open about his experiences and talked to me for hours when I was younger. I bring up Bramps because he was a B-17 bomber pilot during the war. It would have been his job to drop bombs on targets in German-occupied Europe. So that's why Bramps is coming up here. He was part of the strategic bombing campaign that progressively leveled Germany in the waning years of the war. I want to stress here, Bramps was out of the service by the time Dresden met its fate, and he claimed the only city he was sent to bomb was Berlin itself. Still, looking around Dresden, thinking about what he did during the war and how devastating a bombing raid could be, it brings home just how devastating his role was. My grandmother, or Bram, because I couldn't pronounce Graham, said he had nightmares for the rest of his life. I can only imagine why. Everyone seems to know Dresden, or at least what happened to it. If you don't, a quick encapsulation may help. On the evening of February 13, 1945, the RAF subjected Dresden to a massive bombing campaign. Arthur Bomber Harris, a British air officer who had become obsessed with leveling every German city, saw Dresden as a legitimate target in his strategy to end the war by destroying civilian morale, and from a military standpoint, Dresden was also host to a large railroad junction. In the space of one evening, the RAF dropped 1,000 478 tons of high explosive and 1,182 tons of incendiary bombs. The bombardment created a firestorm that incinerated 11 square miles of the historic center, including virtually every building of historic or cultural importance. The next day, the U.S. Army Air Force did their part by dropping even more ordnance. In total, 2,431 tons of high explosive bombs and 1,476 tons of incendiaries fell on Dresden. It wasn't just the scale of destruction, but where it was falling. Dresden had become swollen with refugees fleeing the vengeful Red Army. A bitter irony was that Dresden had been dubbed the Reich Bomb Shelter due to its luck in escaping bombing raids. The death toll is still debated, but most estimates place it at around 25,000. The attack has gone down, as one of the most controversial Allied actions of the war, almost on the same level as the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. As a cultural and artistic center, railroad hub or not, Dresden's military value was debatable in 1945, just as much as it is today. Neo-Nazis have even seized the destruction as a way of lessening the Holocaust, by suggesting that Dresden's obliteration 
proved a moral equivalency between the Western Allies and the Third Reich. In defense of this claim, the far right routinely inflates the death toll to as high as 500,000. Perhaps the most famous legacy of the bombing is a literary one. A young POW named Kurt Vonnegut observed the city's death up close, and his experience helped inspire his famed novel, Slaughterhouse-Five. Dresden has earned the same fame of ill-fated constructs throughout history. No matter what else happened or is connected to that story, your first thought is, oh yeah, that's where... My mother, who openly doesn't understand much of history, asked if there was any sign of the attack. A friend of mine so historically challenged, he once said the sinking of the Lusitania brought America into the Spanish-American War, immediately said, well, the bombing, when I asked why he was so ambivalent about me visiting Dresden. Even with that infamy, I think it's hard for a modern viewer to conceive the sheer scale of destruction that happened. As an American, my closest analog would probably be September 11th, but that was just the World Trade Center and a couple nearby buildings. Instead, try to picture the entire lower half of Manhattan, from Strawberry Fields and Central Park to the Battery, leveled in the course of 48 hours. All of it. The Empire State Building, Rockefeller Center, Times Square, Washington Square, the Village, the Canyon of Heroes. All of it reduced to barely recognizable knee-high rubble in the space of two days. It's really too much to comprehend, but that would roughly correspond to the scale of destroyed area as suffered by Dresden in the bombing raids. Dresden is very much a city that remembers what happened that fateful night, because it's still rebuilding. I don't mean there are jagged ruins or bomb craters visible, more that buildings are still being rehabilitated after the ravages of both Allied bombing and Soviet TLC. There are still facades blackened and pockmarked by fire and blast damage. Most of the gleaming and spotless buildings that command the attention of tourists' cameras are modern reconstructions or renovations. That was what really struck me about the city center. I spent most of my day following a small book written as a walking tour of Dresden's major landmarks. Again and again, the book remarked, This was destroyed. This was destroyed. This was a burned-out shell. This completely collapsed. This is a post-reunification replica. There weren't even two bricks left of this one. It was sobering to realize just how much of the city's intrinsic historic fabric was consumed in the war. Having lived there for five months now, it's hard to picture a Prague where all of its jewels are recreations younger than me. I see now just how fortunate Prague was to escape the fate of its cousin, 80 miles away. In some places, the new regime didn't even bother to rebuild. There are several large parks, grassy expanses, or just open land that simply didn't exist until after 1945. Pictures taken before and just after the bombing raid show tightly packed communities, or in the latter case, the charred ruins thereof. It's hard to imagine just how much bigger and busier the city must have been. Since Germany's reunification, Dresden has dedicated itself to rebuilding as much of its Baroque and Rococo past as possible. But don't think of this as merely whitewashing over a very painful part of the city's history. Dresden has essentially turned itself into a gigantic war memorial. Perhaps the most moving example is the Frauenkirche. It survived just 
but bombing raids only to collapse a few days later. Although there was an immediate push to rebuild it, the political realities of the atheistic East German government left the pile of stones to molder until reunification, when a popular movement arose to resurrect the lost landmark. Architects painstakingly removed the remaining rubble, cataloged it, and reintegrated what they could into the new building. Ultimately, 3,500 stones from the original Frauenkirche were reused in the construction, and their blackened appearance, combined with a chunk of the original dome now left as a memorial, speak today of the city's darkest hours. The accuracy of the replica was assured as much as possible by resources as varied as computer programs used to see how the rubble used to fit together, and legions of aged worshippers armed with yellowed wedding albums depicting the interior or the main doors. The reborn Frauenkirche was topped in 2004 with a 21-foot gilded cross manufactured in London. Among the team who built the relic was a man whose father participated in the very raid that mangled its predecessor. That charred artifact of the old church now sits inside the new church, to the right of the altar, near the guest book where hundreds, myself included, have left messages hoping that the scale of global violence witnessed in World War II has been banished from mankind. But as I left for my next tour stop, a palace that was also raised during the war, I had to wonder, has it? Dresden's destruction is looked at as a symbol of total war, but it was a conventional total war. My parents grew up in northern New England doing duck and cover drills, knowing even at that age how foolish it was to think that this could protect them. Many of my middle-aged ESL students here in Prague remember doing drills in full hazmat gear, armed with mock grenades, with little more than plastic bags over their hands to protect them from fallout. And today, my younger cousin works with nuclear weapons at Whiteman Air Force Base. The immediate living memory of my day-to-day -day life grew up in the shadow of Dresden's ruins, in a world where each side thought that the other was just insane enough to initiate the murder of the human race if it meant the victory of their ideology. Although the wall is down and the Frauenkirche is up, that arsenal is still around, ever-expanding, with an awful lot of itchy trigger fingers on standby. Time will tell, I suppose. And it is on that foreboding note that we end our cursory look at Florence on the Elba. We'll definitely be back, though, to look at Dresden's history, some of its buildings, and perhaps, a more detailed look at the events of February 1945. But for now, we're heading back to Prague, so I can show you around one of my favorite areas in the city. That's all for now. Until next time, happy travels. <laughs> <laughs>